0: And there arose among them a dispute over who would be the greatest. The disciples were walking with Jesus on the road, on the way. They were going to Capernaum. And when they got to Capernaum, he said to them, what were you arguing about as you walked on the way? But they kept quiet because they had been arguing over which of them was the greatest." It seems that part of the human dilemma is this instinctual desire to be the greatest, to be first, to stand out more than we blend in. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, we'd like you to give us anything that we ask, and what do you want? They said, grant that one of us would sit on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. And the disciples were sitting with Jesus at the Last Supper. And while he handed them the cup, a dispute arose among them at the Last Supper, over which of them was the greatest? What is this capacity that even disciples have to be the greatest? I would have written you, said John, to his small church in Third John, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, would have nothing to do with us. The Pharisees said, Jesus, do everything right. They have the tassels and the phylacteries, but they do these things, he says in Matthew 23, to be seen by everyone. They want the chief seats inside the church. And they want to be called rabbi, rabbi, reverend, doctor in front of other people. What is this ability among Christians to do even Christian things? What surprises me is not that it's there, but that it is there among us. And it surprises me where it happens. It happens on the way. It happens at the table. This thing that wants to be first. And there arose among them a dispute over who would be the greatest. Cy Wakeman did research with over 800 leaders in over 100 organizations. And she found in her research that the average employee spends two and a half hours per day dealing with human conflict. So she drilled into it to find out what was the cause of all this conflict. She defines the conflict as wasteful thought processes or unproductive behavior that keeps leaders and their teams from delivering the highest level of results. She found there were five clusters of dysfunctional behavior and the overwhelming largest one was what she called addressing ego behaviors. And what are those? dealing with hurt feelings, misinterpretation or speculation, dealing with an employee hearsay or gossip, handling defensiveness and or resistance to negative feedback, dealing with employees who constantly complain, addressing employees who tattle on others or who judge others, addressing employees who compare their situations to others. Does any of that happen where you work or live? And does it happen among Christians? Think about this, two and a half hours a day, 17 hours in a week, 68 hours in a month, 816 hours in a year, that's almost five months of 40 hours a week job controlling human conflict and a third of it rises from addressing ego behaviors. (laughs) And there arose among themselves a dispute over who would be the greatest. I was rattled this week by reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's description of his own little community that he tried to put together, all Christians, all trying to live according to the Sermon on the Mount. Just read it and do what it says. He writes in his little book, Life Together, that he noticed from the first moment when a man meets another person, he is looking for a strategic position he can assume and hold over that person. If the man is strong, he will use his strength, and if he is weak, he will use the right of the weak against the strong. You hear what he just said? If the man is in the majority, he will use the majority against the minority, and if a man is in the minority, he will use the right of the minority against the majority. writes Bonhoeffer, where is there a person who does not with instinctive sureness find the spot where he can stand and from there defend himself, but which he will never give up to another person. One more time, the problem here is not the rightness of the argument. One may argue for righteousness, justice, and peace, and still do it with the tinge of the human dilemma. Paul called it selfish ambition, which we would never admit to, but he said it was the root in his churches of all the discord, and the jealousy, and the tension, and the strife. What lies at the root, he said, is not the rightness of their arguments, but the root of their arguments. It comes from selfish ambition. And if that is the human dilemma, then the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God is putting together a new community. And this new community is comprised of people whose hearts are being made new. And as we come into this new community, one of the first things we must do is to check our selfish ambition at the door. And so Jesus stood a child among them, and he said, the one who wants to be first among you must be like this child. You must be the least of all. And he said at the last supper when he handed them the cup, The kings of the Gentiles lord it in authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, for he who is first among you must be the least. And to the Pharisees who were wearing the right tassels and the right phylacteries, He said to them, you have but one master and all the rest of you are just brothers and sisters. Jesus imagines a new community where one does not use their status or some previous social category assigned by the culture as a way to take a stand on a position and to defend himself. Against the community. No, says Jesus. When you enter the community, your eyes must look up and around, not down and into yourself. If you look inward, you're getting smaller. But it feels better, don't it? You will have to fight this the rest of your lives. But you can win. You can win against this human tendency to be great and to stand out to be first of all. This community that Jesus envisions is the gospel. The gospel, writes John Colwell, is... The church and the Christian reinterpreting the words of Jesus in their lives, in their worship, in their proclamation to the world. The only interpretation of the gospel that makes sense, says Les Newbegin, is that which is practiced by an individual inside of a community that actually believes it. So Jesus, he came and lived these things among us. And then before he had to deal with the messiness of it, uh, rode off into the sunset. And he left it for Paul to figure out how to get all of these people who were like new in Christ with high aspirations but high expectations too, how to get them to live together. And while there were many churches that didn't, Corinth is one, there were others that were learning how. Ephesians is that one. And in Ephesians, we've said over the last few weeks there is a pretty clear path toward becoming one of these communities. It starts by establishing Christ himself in the center of the community, not human expectations, not some desire for fellowship that we have not found elsewhere. But what Christ and only Christ has established, and so in Ephesians 1, Paul says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he adopted us to be sons and daughters. He redeemed us, and he gave us the Holy Spirit as a down payment for an inheritance that would come later. That's who we are. Once he's established that, he opens the borders and now people from the outside can come in. If we don't establish that first, the people coming in create pockets of special interest. But once we have established Christ as the ground of our community, now we can let anyone in, but they must be reoriented towards the center. You see it. I only see your eyes, I can't tell. Nod. But the rule is, as you come into the community, all previous social categories, slave or free, male or female, black or white, Republican or Democrat, you must check those things at the door and reorient the person towards the center, not towards themselves. Christians will come into the community and still talk about themselves. We must train believers to talk about Christ, the center, not some other voice. But invariably, says Paul, there will be conflict. And so we must get about the work of reconciliation. Reconciliation doesn't mean that the leader has lost control. It means that the, that the boundaries are open. The wall is down. People are coming in. And so reconciliation doesn't happen whenever there's a fight. It's happening all the time. And reconciliation for Christians is not simply mending the fences. It's not passing legislation that says we are separate but equal. Paul says, no, we are different but one. Reconciliation in Jesus Christ does not come through compromise. It comes by using the conflict to find something even higher. And so Paul says, He has torn down the wall of hostility and established in himself one new man out of the two. He established something in himself that didn't exist before. So the way into reconciliation, says Paul in Ephesians, is not by calling for peace and justice. It is by each member coming into the body with a commitment for the well-being of others. The way you fight the ego is to stop condemning ego and call the members to serve other people in the body. It's not by what you're against. It's by what you're trying to do. You're trying to take people who come into the church preoccupied with spiritual growth for themselves. And you're trying to turn their hearts so that they are more concerned about building the body, not just themselves. This is hard to do in the church because churches in America have postured ourselves around a broken system in which we have elevated the the spiritual development of individuals. We've turned churches into like Planet Fitness where everyone comes to church and they work on a part of their spiritual lives that needs work. You go in and you look at the apparatus and you say, well, what part do I need to work on today? Well, there's the small groups. Get on that machine. Over there's the mission trip. Get on that machine. In the center of the room is the universal weight machine called morning worship. Get involved in that. And if you do, you will build your own spiritual life. Well, the problem is that it's come with an equal and opposite lack of attention to building the spiritual life of the whole body. So what we have in our country, it seems, is super strong Christians who worship in weak churches. And Paul's vision for spiritual growth is completely opposite the American one. Paul says... Churches are not Planet Fitness where you go to work on your own body. Churches are the body to which you belong. If you want to build yourself up, build up the body because as the body gets strong, you will get stronger. You must build all of us, not just yourself, and then you will grow. So, so Paul, in the middle of this passage, contrasts two churches. One of them is strong and mature or an adult, and the other one he calls an infant. The adult in verse 13 is one where all of the members are doing the work of ministry, not just the leaders. There are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Those positions exist, says Paul, but their role is to equip the people to do the work of ministry. And so strong churches are churches where the people are doing the work of the ministry. They're not personality cults. You can see how this goes against the American vision of church in which the clergy make most of the decisions and do most of the work. Paul says, it shall not be so. If you are a strong church, The work is being done by everyone in small places that the leadership isn't even aware of. The leader isn't the point, says Paul. It's the effect of the leader on the body that's the point. The leader must build the body up so the body can take positions of leadership. The strong church, says Paul, is one that resists false teaching. The strong body has a high immune system to falseness whenever they hear it. But watch this the truth is not coming from one person on a platform, it's coming from all directions. Paul says, but we will speak the truth in love, and then we will build the body up. It's as the body speaks truth to one another, it is not as one person teaches truth to everybody. You tracking that? So truth must come from every direction. The strong body, says Paul, is one in which everything it does is rooted in the soil of love. They will speak the truth in love. They will build the body up, verse 16, in love as each part does its work. So the strong church may have programs and services the same as everyone else, but at the base of everything they do is love. Spiritual growth is not in the size of the church or the community or in the profits of the organization. Spiritual growth is in its capacity to love. And love is measured by acts of service that people do for one another. When I was uh, younger, I heard about spiritual gifts. Some say this is what Paul is alluding to. Here I disagree, at least not in the traditional sense. In the book of 1 Corinthians and in the book of Romans, Paul mentions spiritual gifts, And I think he does that in part because the church in Rome and the church in Corinth were fighting over spiritual gifts. The people in Ephesus are not fighting about this. So he mentions no gifts. In chapter four, he just says there must be works of service and they must come from every direction. They're not cleverly organized and they're not usually visible. These are quiet, little, subtle acts of service that seem in the moment to just be ordinary. But they're happening, thousands of them inside of a strong body. So I went about looking for my spiritual gift. I took tests and inventories that taught me how to look inward at my abilities, things that I do naturally, I do them really, really well, and then to try to develop those things. And I got halfway through this and started to realize that this was a purely American way of assessing one's spiritual gifts. It starts with me. Instead of we, it says that spiritual gifts are some kind of latent, dormant talent or ability that is buried deep inside of me, and if I find it and I start to express it, I could be a more self-actualized person. But if spiritual gifts start in the body, then they're not in you until the need calls them out. It's the need of the body that triggers the spiritual gifts. So one finds his spiritual gift not by looking inward, but by looking around at what the body needs at the time. And the question is never so much, how good a person is at doing those things. The question is, what does the body need? If the body needs it, it is better to do it poorly than to wait for somebody else. So you don't wait for permission for some leader in the church, I better watch that, give you the right to practice your spiritual gift. You look around and with no previous permission, you throw yourself recklessly into the need of the entire organization. And when you do that, it shifts your focus from inward. How good am I? What are people thinking right now to outward? How are they doing now that I'm doing this? What is the effect on the body? Now, it really helps if you can do it with a fair level of proficiency. But proficiency generally comes later. Paul is calling for us to throw ourselves into someone's need before we're good at it. Because if it isn't about us, but them... We'll get better as we do it. And so when Moses said, I cannot lead for I stutter, Yahweh said, What is in your hand? And when Gideon said, But I'm the smallest man in the smallest tribe of a very small nation, Yahweh said, Go in the strength that you have. (sighs) Not somebody else's strength. Go in the strength that you have. And Jeremiah said, I cannot speak for I am only a child. And Yahweh said, do not say I am only a child. You must go to the people I send you to go to and you must say what I tell you to say. For I, Yahweh, will be with you. And the woman said to Elijah, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing but a handful of flour and a small jug of oil. I cannot make you a cake. Elijah says, Use the flour and the oil to make a cake for the need that is in front of you right now and you will never run out of flour and the oil will never run dry. Said the woman, I have only enough food for my son and I to eat and then we will die. Elijah said, in effect, If you use what you have for just you and your son, you will surely die. But if you will give it away, there will be more tomorrow. The power of these little acts Christians do by looking around at what the body needs and then looking within afterward and saying, what do I have that I can give to that need? This is the way that the body gets stronger. And when the body gets stronger, every member in the body gets stronger. So church, as the doors are open and as people from different experiences come into our community, we must all reorient toward the needs of others. Last story. I've told this before. I'll tell it one more time. Some years ago, there was a fellow living in Nebraska. His name was Herman Ostry. He had a barn that was sitting on territory that was too low. And every time the rains came, the, the, the land would flood and the floor of his barn would be full of water and it frustrated him, but he was a poor Nebraska farmer and he didn't have the money to deconstruct it and build a new one or to have it professionally moved. And so he devised a plan. He would build steel brackets around all four walls of this barn, and he would recruit the people from his little town to come and pick up his barn and move it for him. What a dumb idea. But they did. 344 people showed up one morning, and one guy with a megaphone... And the newsmakers were there, and they were filming it. You can watch it on YouTube if you want, though not now. And they asked one of the guys, these were people of all sizes, and a lot of them were old, and they asked one of the guys, do you think you'll be able to lift this barn? And the guy said, yes. He's straight-faced. He said, yes, I'm pretty strong. I can lift 90 pounds. Hmm going to take nine, about 9,400 of you, if you can lift only 90 pounds. But sure enough, he got them inside this steel brace. And at a count of three, everybody picked up that barn, that entire barn. And they walked in lockstep together until they parked it on higher ground. That's ah, a great story. Afterward, they interviewed another one of these old men. They said, boy, that seemed like it's a pretty uh, heavy thing. And the old man said, nah, he said, I'm strong. And he lifted his arm up and his muscle went like that. <laughs> but when you get 344 of that, getting a hold of anything, you can move it. So when you come to church or you go to work, what bugs you about the team you play for, about the church you attend, such that when you get in there, you look at it, you go, I just wish these people would. You ever realize your expectations are rooted in your abilities? It bugs you because Your expectations are so high, and your expectations are generally high because you have some ability in those areas. So when you come to church or you go to work, what bugs the life out of you where you work? And what are you naturally good at that other people think, well, I I mean, anybody can do that, but they can't do that. When you do it, when you do it, everybody wins. Everybody wins. And if you were to do that for the place where you worship, if you were to forget about your expectations and just say, how do I use this to build the body? Because when they get strong, so will I. What might you need to do? Jesus? Well, Jesus, I worry that sometimes these are just sermons. And I want these to move the body. Would you please help our little church to, uh, to become more like a body and less like a local church? this name.